of a walk. Let's welcome this morning Pastor Rod as he comes and brings the morning message. speak until I have everyone's attention, so. Attention! <laughs> oh, I'm waiting for the kids to leave. <laughs> uh, this week we have uh, not the quote of the week, but quotes, plural, of the week. Uh, the first one, the church does not determine what the Bible teaches. The Bible determines what the church must teach. Now, the reason I put that up there is several weeks ago, I spoke on a subject and I got some kickback from folks that watched the video uh, online. And they said, why did you say what you said? And I know that there are some things in Scripture that are not real clear to me, and, and those things I speak very um, carefully about. But on this particular message, there is no controversy. Scripture is clear. And, uh, and I had to share with them uh, this quote, that I don't determine what the Bible says. That, that's not my prerogative. I, I don't preach what I necessarily want to preach. Um, because I don't determine the message, God does. And so, I think it's real important, especially in our culture today, where uh, there's so much relativism and no, nothing's absolute, that people don't understand the church, and that we don't determine what the Bible teaches. Uh, the Bible determines what the church must teach. And so, Part of uh, being a Christian in today's culture means that we are countercultural, and there are times when we uh, we won't be understood, even though we give a message, hopefully in an attitude of love. Um, second quote goes along with it. It's by Vance Havner. He says, "It's not our business to make the message acceptable, but to make it available. We are not to see." that they like it, but that they get it. Uh, he's also one that uh, was uh, asked why he always rubs the fur the wrong way, and he says, well, you just turn the cat around, he says. Uh, that, that, that's the problem. And so, um, sometimes we do rub the fur the wrong way, and as I've told you before, before we ever preach to a congregation, we preach to ourselves. And we do not have any cause for pride, uh, no cause to preach down to people. Um, we too are sinners saved by the grace of God, but we don't determine the message. Uh, God determines the message. 
How important is repentance in becoming a Christian? In order to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, does a person need to repent? Well, listen to the following scriptures. These are the words of Peter. Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. And the context in which he says that is he's referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise that one day Jesus Christ is going to return. So, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Or the words of the Apostle Paul, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And again, the words of the Apostle Paul, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. The words of Peter, the words of Paul, um, how about the words of Jesus? Jesus said, unless you repent, you too will all perish. So how important is repentance to salvation? Well, it's essential. It's not optional. If when you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you did not repent, then you have not yet become a Christian. Regardless of what you prayed, regardless of what others have told you, you are not yet saved from your sin, because unless you repent, Jesus said, you too will all perish. Now that might sound severe, but actually, uh, those are words of love. Those are words of compassion from Jesus Christ. Jesus uttered them to deliver us from hell. The most loving and the most kind thing you can do for another person is to tell them of some impending danger that they're about to face. If your child is oblivious to his or her surroundings and they're running out into the middle of the street and the speeding car is headed in their direction, you shout, you scream, you do whatever you have to do in order to protect them. And that's what Jesus Christ is doing here. The one who so loved us that he left heaven for our sakes and came down to earth for our sakes and lived a poor, humble life on this planet for our sakes. The one who went to the cross for us, the one who died for us, the one who bore the penalty of our sins said, out of a heart of love and compassion, unless you repent, you too will perish. So these are words of love coming from our Savior. So, there is a way to escape from perishing. There is a way to escape from the wrath of God. Jesus doesn't say, you too will all perish, period. No, he says, unless you repent, you too 
will all perish. The word unless means there's a way out. There is hope. There is deliverance. There is an opportunity to escape perishing. So the essential nature of repentance Repentance is essential, not optional, for salvation. And yet we don't hear many sermons these days really about the subject of repentance. Uh, it certainly isn't because the Bible is silent on the subject. Uh, Seventy-four times, both in Old and New Testament, you'll find the words repent, or repenting, or repents, or repentance. It's essential. It's discussed all throughout the Bible. It's essential for salvation. The essential nature of repentance. And then the intellectual nature of repentance. The word repent literally means to have a change of mind. I mean, that's where repentance begins. It begins in the mind. It's, it's going to be seen in the heart. It's going to be seen in the life. But it begins in the mind. To repent means to change your mind. You say, well, change your mind about what? Well, to change your mind about God, to change your mind about your purpose in life, to change your mind about your destiny, to change your mind about your choices, to change your mind about Jesus Christ, to change your mind about the significance of his death and his resurrection, but primarily the word repentance means to change your mind on the subject of sin. True repentance begins with the intellect, with your knowledge about your sin. You become aware of your sin. Your eyes are open to the fact that, that you've been living a life apart from dependence upon God. You realize that in the past, really, you've, you've had no love for God and, and no love for His ways. Uh, you've thought of yourself up to that time as a pretty good person. But now you see yourself not standing next to your neighbor, but standing next to God. And next to God, you realize that you're really not a very good person at all. In fact, Standing next to God, you, you realize that if you took an honest examination of your heart, you, you're rather wicked. <laughs> There's a corruptness about you. You're guilty of what the Bible calls sin. True repentance begins with a change of thinking, a change of how you view yourself before God. At the end of a church service, a pastor gave an invitation, an old-fashioned altar call for people who, who wanted to come to faith in Jesus Christ to come forward and, and give the pastor and his leadership team an opportunity to, to walk them to, through the steps of, of what it means to become a true follower of Jesus Christ. And, and this man came forward and he said to the pastor, he says, he said, I'm tired of hurting God. Okay, he got it. That's repentance. You see your sin not compared to other people. You see your sin compared to God, and you're tired of hurting God. For the first time in his life, he compared himself to, to the holiness of God and realized that 
Compared to his neighbor, he was all right. But compared to God, he was an abject moral failure. And that's the beginning of true repentance. It's a complete change of mind on the subject of sin. The Bible says that we're all born in sin. We all, we all gravitate in that direction. Um, no one had to teach me to sin. Um, I was never instructed to be deceitful or to be self-willed or proud or foolish because that's just part of our nature. We're born in sin and repentance begins with knowledge and awareness of our sin. We see ourselves as we really are in the sight of God. You remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? And after living apart from his father and debauchery and sin, it says he came to his senses. He, there was an intellectual acknowledgement there. He came to his senses. He realized his utter foolishness in living the way he did. He recognized his spiritual depravity, but it all began in his mind. He came to his senses, and that's where repentance begins. There's an intellectual dimension to repentance. There must be a change in the way we think. The intellectual nature of repentance. But there's also an emotional nature of repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, it says... Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. So, the sorrow of repentance, the sorrow of true repentance, is what the Apostle Paul calls here, godly sorrow. And that's an emotion. It's a godly sorrow that brings salvation and leads us to... Uh, that... that, that Start over. It's a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance, and that in turn leads us to salvation. Where there's a, a genuinely repentant heart, when we are confronted with our sin against God, and we see the enormity of our sin, and that we have offended God, and lived in rebellion against Him, in true repentance, that brings sorrow. We mourn over our sinful condition. It's not a sorrow that, okay, we've been caught. You know, we've been caught in the act. It's not a sorrow for the many problems we've created for ourselves and the lives of others because of our foolish actions. It's a sorrow because we have dishonored God. We have disregarded Him. It's a sorrow for a wasted life. And godly sorrow that leads to repentance will always issue into salvation. But you can be sorry and acknowledge your sin and not be repentant. But you cannot fully repent unless you feel sorry for your sin. So true repentance begins with a knowledge of sin and then leads to a genuine sorrow for sin. But don't stop there. There is an intellectual nature of repentance. There's an emotional 
nature of repentance, but there's also a volitional nature of repentance in Scripture. True repentance begins with the mind, it affects the emotions, but then it changes your will. It begins with a knowledge of sin, and then there's a sorrow for sin, but then there must be a forsaking of sin. And all three ingredients must be present for a repentance that leads to salvation. When there's been a knowledge of sin and a sorrow for sin, when there's been an awareness that you violated the law of God and that you're sorry, deeply, truly sorry for sin, even to the point of tears and regret, until you're willing to forsake your sin, to forsake your independent life from God, you haven't truly repented. You're not truly saved. I've spoken many a time at a, a rescue mission, whether it be in downtown Portland or um, downtown Indio, California, and men would respond to the message of, of grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. They would understand their sin. They would weep over their sin. But they would not forsake their sin. And yet, that is an essential ingredient to true repentance. And here's the scary part. That many people have a false assurance of their own salvation because they think that they had a, a knowledge of sin and a sorrow of sin and even a confession of sin and that's enough. But it's not enough. Not when you take all of Scripture together. In, that, in other words, repentance is more than a repeated apology. That's not repentance. How many times have you and I gone to God and said, God, I confess my sins to you, and then ten minutes later you do the same thing, and you're going, what in the world is going on here? That's not repentance. That's a repeated apology. But true repentance is more than a repeated apology. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, for, to, for, to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's true repentance. So true repentance will not make you perfect, but true repentance will alter the direction of your life. True repentance will be seen by your desire to forsake your sin and to resist sin and to fight sin in your life. So true repentance results in a reorientation, a redirection of your life. It changes who you are. It changes who you worship. Once you worship self and pleasure and people and things, but now you worship God through Jesus Christ. Now you live not for the pleasure of Rod, but for the pleasure of God. <laughs> Once you live just 
with this life in view, but now you live with eternity in view. Once you lived in sin, whether it be passive resistance or active rebellion, but now you truly desire to give up your sin, to fight it, to resist it. You no longer live as though God did not exist. And it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, you know, he says you must either give up your sin or give up all hope of heaven. Now, let me say that again. You must either give up your sin or give up your hope of heaven. When he said that, he wasn't saying that you'll now become perfect in all that you do. When he said that, he, he wasn't saying that you'll never have some rough spots in your life where, you know, you take one step forward and four steps back. But what he was saying there is that, look, Unless you are willing to fight sin, to give up sin, to change the direction of your life, then you're not going to have a hope of heaven. Because repentance involves not only your intellect or emotions, but your will. And you must be willing to forsake your sin. Now, I don't know who wrote this, but it says, Repentance is not merely a positive decision for Christ. We cannot simply add Christ to a sin-laden life and go on loving sin as if giving lip service to Christ somehow sanctifies our wickedness. I remember the story of Billy Graham when he started his international evangelistic career basically in Los Angeles. And there was an individual who kept coming to the tent meeting in Los Angeles for this great evangelistic event, who was a known member of the mob down in the Los Angeles area. And he kept coming night after night after night. And one night, he went forward. And the Billy Graham team obviously was thrilled and should have been. But in the days and the weeks and the months later, this mob boss was still a mob boss. And finally, a Christian who knew him said, I thought you went forward to trust Jesus. And he said, I did. He said, then why are you doing what you're doing? You haven't forsaken any of your sin. And he said, well, I didn't know I had to do that. <laughs> what? Because he trusted Jesus. Okay, what's involved in trusting Jesus? Well, repentance is part of it. It's hard sometimes to preach the whole counsel of God and get the whole message in at one shot. And we do tell people to believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus. Because that's what the Bible says. But part of believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus involves repentance. That's also what the Bible says. In true repentance, you will not continue living in sin. 
Would you still sin? Yes. Yes, you will. First John chapter 1 says, If anyone says he does not sin, he's a liar. <laughs> Which is also a sin. Yeah. And so, you will still sin after true repentance. But you're not going to live in sin. You're not going to be satisfied with sin. You're not going to love your sin. You're going to fight it. You're going to resist it. Sin will not be your normal behavior. You are done being the Lord of your life. And you have a new king. And the king isn't you. It's King Jesus. A new king has taken up residence. And what the king asks you to do, you obey. Out of love, not out of coercion. You turn from a life where you thought you didn't really need the God of heaven and you turn into a, a new love relationship that you never thought was possible through Jesus Christ. You turn from your sins. And along with this forsaking of sin comes a hatred of sin. You hate it when you see it in your life. You, you hate it when you see it in the, the lives of others because you know what it does to other people. The scripture says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Jennifer Greenberg tells the story of her father. I'd like to read it to you. I'm sorry, I remember my dad saying. I'm sorry and I love you. Well, he didn't say what he was sorry for. He, he didn't mention the, the hand-shaped bruises aching up and down my small 11-year-old body. He didn't seem to understand how afraid and devastated I'd been, but that was the first time I'd ever heard my dad say sorry. And the relief it brought felt like rain after a drought. Well, in the back of my mind, a little voice said, don't trust this. He's only apologizing because mom threatened to tell Pastor Jim. I shoved that voice down. I smothered my thoughts. I had prayed for so long that dad would change. I tried to be a good daughter who reminded him of Jesus. His apology, however vague, was hope and a sign that God was working. Or was it? Around a decade would pass before I'd hear my dad apologize again. Initially, I didn't assume sincerity. By that time, I'd already blown the whistle myself. I told our pastor everything. Dad was under church discipline. His marriage was imploding. He had nothing to gain by lying. Did he? And then something strange happened. <coughs> As I began sharing my story with pastors and family and friends, my dad would admit and apologize for the things that he'd done. But then weeks or even days later, claim he didn't remember any of it. He'd say he didn't recall beating me. He didn't recall throwing me down the stairs. He did not recall even his recent sexual comments. 
He didn't recall throwing a knife at me or threatening to shoot me. He'd apologize, but then he'd retract. Remember, and then he claimed to forget. And back and forth, this went on for maybe a year until I felt like I was losing my mind. I don't know what to think. I told him over the phone one day. Huddled on the kitchen floor, I spoke between sobs. I said, I believe you're either crazy and didn't know what you were doing, or you're evil and understood completely. I'm not crazy, he replied calmly. You're just going to have to accept that I'm evil. True repentance or false repentance? False repentance. It's false in human relationships, and it can be false in divine relationships, too. It could be false between a father and a daughter. It can be false between us and God. When we say we're sorry, we confess our sin. But we don't repent. False repentance. Look, a repentant heart is appalled by sin. Repentant heart is, is humbled and horrified by the sin that they see in their own eyes. A repentant person feels something of the pain of their sin. That is, a repentant person won't try to downplay their sin, won't try to minimize their sin, won't, won't excuse their sin. They won't point to all their good deeds and all their positive points that should somehow outweigh their sin and erase their sin. But they'll take responsibility for their sin. And they'll, they'll grieve over their sin. There'll be true remorse. But then a repentant person changes their behavior. A truly repentant person is going to realize that they need God to sanctify their heart. They can't do it on their own. They'll work with the help of the Holy Spirit who now resides in their life to change their behavior and, to, and then to take action, to, to take steps to avoid sin and temptation. A repentant person is awestruck by forgiveness. They, they, they know they're not entitled to being forgiven. They know that. They see it as a gracious miracle gift of God. And then the repentant person sees life through different lenses and thinks about life in a totally different way. So true repentance begins with the intellect an acknowledgement of sin and then there's a sorrow for sin in his emotions but then there's a forsaking of sin, a changing of the will, the desire to live a life of love that is pleasing to God. The volitional nature of repentance. And then there's a supernatural nature of repentance Repentance is not something that we do naturally. It isn't our nature to repent. It's not our nature to want to repent. That's why repentance in the scripture always starts with God. It's the same with salvation. Salvation starts with God. Salvation ends with God. 
He planned it. He provided for it. He initiates it. And he offers it to us as a gift. And with all of God's gifts, we can humbly accept it by grace. Or we can just defiantly reject it. Repentance is the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is written to preachers. And this is written to Timothy as he's overseeing the, the church at Ephesus. And Paul says to him, How many men in true life does it take to hold up a... No. <laughs> The Apostle Paul said, as he's writing to Timothy, he's overseeing the work at Ephesus, he says, look, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Now, if you're just sitting in the congregation reading that, you say, well, that's right. But if you're in the pastorate, in a leadership position, that is not easy to do. At least not for me. You know, I like to win the theological battle. But... The Lord's servant must not quarrel. He must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Well, that's convicting to me. I'm sorry, but that's my weak spot. In the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. It says that God grants repentance. That is, God offers it to you as a gift, as an opportunity to walk in the truth. But you can reject the gift. There are times in your life when the Spirit of God will call you to salvation. There will be a time, times in your life when you will have a conviction about sin. And you'll sense a guilt, and you'll sense a need of a Savior. And I'm telling you, that does not happen every day. Most days, you live your life, you love, you work, you play. But then there are times, and to me, it seems like there are rare occasions, when God is speaking to somebody's heart, He's trying to get their attention to invite them into a love relationship with Himself. And those are the times when God is granting you repentance. It is His gift to you. He is doing a supernatural work in your heart, and He has taken that initiative. But you can ignore it. And you can say, not now. Not interested. And presumably hope that there'll be another time in your life when God will be calling you to salvation. That's a gamble I wouldn't want to take. So if God speaks to an individual's heart and takes that initiative to grant them repentance, 
then you need to accept that then. Because one day you'll hear God's final call to you. And it might be too late. But there is a supernatural nature to repentance. God takes that initiative. And then there's the radical nature of repentance. What are the results of repentance? Well, we already looked at one in 2 Timothy chapter 2 just a moment ago. That is, you come to a knowledge of the truth. Now you know the truth, you walk in the truth, you can identify what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong, what is reality and what is not reality. You come to a knowledge of the truth. And then you have the gift of the forgiveness of sins. The first sermon after the ascension of Jesus into heaven was given by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, again the words of Peter, repent and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. When there's true repentance, your sins will never be held against you. I don't understand that. I, it just boggles my mind that God is never going to hold me account for my sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. Your sins have been wiped out, never to be seen again. Another result of true repentance is found in the rest of Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So re you receive the Holy Spirit. God's empowering presence comes to live within you so that you have a, a new ability to live a life you've never been able to live before. You will be forever enabled to do the will of God, not in your own strength, but because God, by His Spirit, lives in you. And then a fourth thing, you will have the privilege of being the cause for joy in heaven. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke 15, 10. There is something that I can do on earth that affects what is taking place in heaven. Jesus says there's, there's a party in heaven when a sinner repents. And we, by the grace of God, when we turn to God in true repentance, cause the angels of heaven to rejoice. Have the angels of heaven ever rejoiced over you? because you repented of sin. Finally, the perpetual nature of repentance. Those who have walked with God for a while know that repentance is not a one-time experience. Repentance is an ongoing experience. A true believer never stops repenting. It's, it's not enough to acknowledge your sin. It's not enough to feel sorry for your sin once. Repentance is a lifestyle. It's an everyday experience. It's a constant experience. As day by day and month by month and year by year, 
you become aware of your sin and you are sorry for your sin and you desire to forsake your sin and by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to live a life that's pleasing to God. When Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg church door, his first thesis was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. So each day we turn afresh to God and we repent. It's an ongoing experience. In this life we are ever repentant because we often see the flaws, the rebellious heart, our character, our conduct, our conversation that is displeasing to God, and when we do, we repent. It's not as if we self-loathe ourselves or beat ourselves down. It's not that. It's just that we see ourselves as we really are in the sight of God, and we need to acknowledge our sin, sorrow for our sin. And by the way, when you don't feel sorry for your sin, ask God to help you feel sorry for your sin. Sometimes you sin and you're not sorry. Well, shame on you. And when you come to that point, then ask God to give you a sorrow for sin. And then turn from it. Because we're in the continual need of the grace and forgiveness of God, the perpetual nature of repentance. So, how important is repentance in becoming a Christian? Unless you repent, you too will all perish. There are a few preachers that I've heard, sometimes in book form and sometimes on audio or video form. I wish I could be them. <laughs> I wish I could have been raised under their ministry. One of those guys is a guy named J.C. Ryle. And he lived, oh my, oh, over 150 years ago. He was a British preacher. I wish I could have sat under his ministry. He preached a sermon on repentance. And he said this, It is not only necessary for thieves and murderers and drunkards and adulterers, no, all born of Adam, all without exception, need repentance toward God. Now remember, he's British, and he says, The queen on her throne, and the pauper in the workhouse, the rich man in his mansion, and the servant in the kitchen, the professor of sciences at the university, the boy who follows the plow, all by nature need repentance. And then he said this, he says, Our best repentance is but a poor and imperfect thing. Even our repentance needs to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. But as long as you do not repent of sin, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is no gospel to your soul. And then he continued and spoke of eternity and he said there is one thing I'm sure I shall not see 
Get this. I shall not see at the right hand of Jesus Christ one single impenitent person. I shall see Abraham there who said, I am dust and ashes. I shall see Jacob there who said, I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies. I shall see Job there who said, I am vile. I shall see Isaiah there who said, I am a man of unclean lips. I shall see Paul there who said, I am the chief of sinners. I shall see the martyr John Bradford there who signed at the end of every one of his letters, the wretched sinner John Bradford. I shall see Archbishop Usher there whose last words were, pardon my many sins, especially my sins of omission. Who will I see at the right hand of Jesus in heaven? All who hated sin, all who mourned over sin, all who have forsaken sin, all who have repented as well as believed in Jesus Christ. And then his final sentence. Repentance is the experience of every true believer in Jesus Christ. How important is repentance to salvation? Unless you repent. You too all will perish. There was a song that was written some time ago that we used to sing in church. Um, last week we, we had the privilege of having Paul Hunter with us. Was that a great service or what? <laughs> I called up a few people and said, you got to go to the website. you got to listen to this. This is a great week. Well, I, I was brought up in the church that his pastor, that his father pastored, J.Q. Hunter. And I was, uh, I was an adopted J.Q. Hunter kid. I uh, not only was raised under his ministry, but I was his intern for a year. I studied under his guidance. And he, if you knew J.Q. Hunter, he was an evangelist. Uh, no matter what text of scripture you gave him, it still come out an evangelistic message. He couldn't be what he wasn't. He was an evangelist. And so we would often have altar calls in our church. And um, one of the songs that we would sing that many of you probably have heard is, is the song, Jesus, I Come. And what's interesting about the song is not once is the word repentant or repent or repented or repents found in it, but the song illustrates repentance. It says, out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. Into thy freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health, out of my want, into thy wealth, out of my sin, and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. Into the glorious gain of the cross, Jesus, I come to thee. That's repentance. You, you come out of and turn from and come into and turn toward. You... There's a whole reorientation of your life.
One of the scariest things that I think would ever happen would be that somebody who knew the Bible, knew the message of Scripture, knew the message of Jesus, understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, who had that intellectual understanding and sometimes they had an emotional response to it, but, but never, never repented. And somehow they weren't aware of that. And one day they'll stand before the judgment bar of God and he'll tell them, I never knew you. And they're thinking, how could you not know me? I, I knew about your son. I knew what he did for me. I, I prayed a prayer. But they never... They never truly repented, and they'd be lost forever. And yet in this life, they had this false assurance of salvation. You know what? That's going to happen. Jesus said so in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Many will say, Lord, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. He says, but I never knew you. And then he tells them why. And he tells them because, you know, they never had a heart that obeyed, obeyed him. Yeah, but they prayed the prayer. They went to church. They did all the things that they thought they should do, but they never repented. Listen to the song, and would you do me the honor of examining your heart? Are you one of those who have an intellectual and emotional understanding of repentance? but not a volitional one. You've never truly turned from your sin and turned truly to Christ. Jesus, I come.
and becoming a Christian, becoming a true follower of Jesus Christ, and unless you repent, you too will all perish. Father, we ask that you would take the truth of your word and bring it home to our hearts, and may your spirit draw people to faith in Jesus today. We ask this for your glory. And for the praise of our Savior, 
and the truthfulness of your word. Amen.